My name is John Fox, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today, uh, we're going to continue in our Acts series. So feel free to uh, turn to the book of Acts, and we're going to continue in chapter 15 today. And as we do that, we really have um, gone a long way in the book of Acts, and we will hit a uh, pretty big chapter today in Acts 15. It's a big chapter, not just because of the, the content, even though that's, that's a, a large part of it, but also because of the, uh, all the events that have led up to it. So I'd like to just give you a quick review of Acts 14. If you weren't here last week, that's what we went over, uh, or you just forgot, like uh, probably most people or probably myself at some points, and, and uh, I have the, the privilege of not forgetting because I preached it, so... Uh, let me just give you a quick review, and that is that last week we saw Paul and Barnabas, two Jewish believers, go into unknown territory to share the gospel. And as they did, they encountered all sorts of things that they've never really encountered before outside of their Jewish context. Uh, they experienced some things where, like people worshiping them, wanting to sacrifice animals to them, thinking that they were Greek gods, all sorts of things that are normally outside of their normal experience. And uh, as they, they get through that whole situation, they end up coming back to the church that they were sent from, the second church that existed at that point, the church in Antioch. And, and they really encourage all the believers there, saying all the different things that God had done through them and with them and, and all these other peoples that had never even heard of the gospel and some hadn't even heard of Moses They didn't know anything really about God revealing himself to the other nations through the Jewish people. They were pagans for the most part. And as they go back and they they share this great news with the church in Antioch, they end up running into some opposition. And this is something that was inevitable. And it's really the reason why that Acts 15 is where it is in the book of Acts. Uh, just so you know, the, this chapter is arguably, and most commentators that I, that I found agree, the center of the book of Acts. This is the very center of the book. Uh, it's Acts 15. Of course, there are 28 chapters, so it's not the center in terms of the chapters, but in terms of the actual word usage it is. It's split right on this chapter. And uh, part of that reason is because of the theological component here we see that everything running up in the book of Acts, all that God had done, the, the event of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's chosen people uh, who are now Jews and Gentiles, and then the movement of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth, which we saw last week, has now all come to one head in Acts 15 to really ask one question. How is it that these two completely different groups of people Jews and Gentiles, how is it that they can live together in unity? How is it that they can engage one another with such vastly different cultures? They really do just live completely apart. They operate differently. How is it that they can come together in unity for the sake of the gospel? And as this chapter begins, that's really the, uh, the main contention going on. 
that we see that some people came down from Jerusalem saying, no, in order to be a believer, you have to believe in Jesus and something else. You have to believe that Jesus died, rose, and ascended to heaven, and you have to be circumcised. And so we see for the first time a huge theological debate in the church. And there's been many, many debates over the years. This is the first one. This is the first theological debate. And so a lot of people, and probably in your Bible, uh, it says the Jerusalem Council as the as the title for this chapter. That's because this is a council that comes together to decide a really important issue, super important issue. How is it that we are saved? What does that mean for Jews and Gentiles? And in this chapter, you could just say it like this. If people are saved by Jesus through grace, then what do we do with the Mosaic law? It is a tremendous chapter in terms of the placement of Acts, the Bible on the whole, but even church history. There is a lot of information about this chapter, and we're going to not really dig into all those details and get in the weeds. I'm going to try to still hover above all those and really pull out some, some bigger ideas rather than getting into it in terms of uh, what, does, what does the law mean and which laws can we do and can we not do and all those sorts of things. We'll just kind of hone in on the main point of grace because that seems to be what that passage is about. So the main point for this morning is this, that salvation by grace is hard to embrace. And yes, I did use a rhyme for my first, uh, for my main point. So um, hopefully it sticks with you. Embrace, I was like, ah, I don't really want to use embrace, but it's, it works, and I think it really gets to the point, as we'll see at the end. Salvation by grace is hard to embrace. It's hard to accept. This is a theological concept, salvation by grace. And of course, it is that Jesus died our death for us that we deserved and rose for us, giving us righteousness. This is the grace, salvation, that we don't have to experience the wrath of God, as we'll see, but Jesus did for us. Salvation by grace is hard to embrace. Now, why would you think it would be hard to embrace? Because that's good news. In fact, that's the gospel that we see all through the New Testament. But it is, especially in this chapter, hard for people to understand, to accept, to own, to embrace. And there are kind of three ways that we see that. And we'll jump in with it and read, starting in verse 1. But the first reason salvation by grace is hard to embrace, is hard to take in, is because it seems unfair. It seems unfair. And I'll start reading Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what happens here? This is about 15 to 18 years after Jesus has died, risen, and ascended to heaven. 15 to 18 years, probably closer to 18 years. This is enough for a new generation to rise up, being Christians even, and enough time has passed where they have to think about what actually happened almost 20 years ago and what it still means for them. And so some men come down from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, at least supposedly Jewish Christians, and they go to some Gentile men who are believers now, and then they say that they have to get circumcised. So uh, it may be a little humorous for us, but I can imagine why this would start a fight, right? If you have some men coming from one city, going to another city, trying to circumcise the men at the other city, there's going to be some conflict happening, okay? These are not babies. These are full-grown men, and I'm sure that besides just the religious component, they had some physical problem with this happening, undoubtedly. And, and so a debate happens, a debate opens up, and Barnabas and Paul are on one side of the debate where they're saying, this doesn't have to happen. Praise God doesn't have to happen for those men. So uh, as that debate gets going, Bar- Barnabas and Paul are on one side, and these other people who we will see eventually are named in the New Testament as Judaizers, who... who uh, are saying that everyone is required to keep the law of Moses, are very strict about it, and they, they're on the other side, and they say they have to do it. They absolutely have to do it. There's no other way that they can be saved. It has to be Jesus and following the law. It has to be Jesus and circumcision. And back then, circumcision would be, um, it, it was a shorthanded way to say the law. So when God originally gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham, it was a way of communicating to his family, and to everyone else around them what it meant to be God's people. They literally look different than all the other nations of the world. They're set apart. And so it became a shorthanded way to say that if you're circumcised, it's not just the circumcision, but circumcision entails everything about the law. Everything about the law. And this is what these men wanted, not just for the Gentile Christians to be circumcised, they wanted them to follow every single point of the law. It was necessary in their view for them to be able to do this and follow Jesus. And so as this conflict ramps up, we see Paul and Barnabas take the other side and then they go to Jerusalem to have a head-to-head meeting on it. And we pick up in verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God chose among you, made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, we are, we are, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Obviously, this is a big issue because it involves all the believers, especially the apostles and the 
elders at this council in Jerusalem. And so Peter, after the debate has gone on for a while, stands up and speaks. And as he does, he's going to just recap for them what had happened some years ago, over 10 years ago. And we see this happen actually in Acts chapter 10. It's the Gentile Pentecost. Peter has a vision, and in the vision, God tells him, do not discriminate against any other nation. Don't treat them differently. That's the word that comes up, and Peter will use again, that God told me not to discriminate. I shouldn't treat Jews one way and Gentiles another. Why? Because he hasn't. He's given the message of salvation to everyone. And as he recaps that story, he will say something crazy. He really just ratchets it up here and says that God cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, the impact of that on us probably is completely lost. It means almost nothing. But for these Jews in Jerusalem, it would have been breathtaking. And we see that it actually was. What Peter is saying is that their entire way of life, their entire way of life is really not necessary anymore. You see, for Jews, uh, there was a tremendous divide between Jews and the rest of the world. This is how they kept their heritage. This is how they kept all the rules and the laws, by separating themselves, insulating themselves from every other nation. It happened when they got taken, deported to Babylon, And ever since then, how are we going to keep our culture? We're going to do it by following these laws. And that was the set of laws given by Moses in the Old Testament. It's called the Mosaic Law. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, if you want to be my people, here's what you have to do. This is what I'm like. And so he gives them 613 laws. We typically only think of the 10 laws of the... uh, of the Old Testament, the Ten Words, the Ten Laws, Ten Commandments given by Moses, all that. But really, that's only part of it. If you want to list out every single law in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Covenant, it is 613 laws. And these are theoretical. It's not like, okay, I'll just obey like 10 of them, and then the others kind of, they can come and go. No. If you are going to do this, you're all in as a Jew. Every area of your life centers around these 613 commandments. You have to do it. And for them, because their life was so wrapped up in all this, they easily thought, I'm making myself righteous. I'm the one doing this. And here comes, here comes a different group of people. In fact, all the other nations of the world, and they don't do hardly one of these laws, and they're accepted by God in Christ. I really gained some sympathy for uh, even the Judaizers here as I was studying this passage because it's hard. This is hard for them. Hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years of following this tradition, trying to hit every single one of these laws, and it's not only these laws. Around the turn of the um, of the, the century going into the A.D. period, it wasn't just the 613 laws. They had other scribes, other Pharisees, other Jewish leaders that said, you know what, that's not enough. We need laws around those laws to keep us from even getting close to breaking them. 
So they added another 400 laws on top of those laws. So you have almost a thousand laws that you have to keep. This is the kind of system that every Jewish person lived in if they were going to be a godly Jew, if they're going to be somebody who's a part of the covenant with God. And so as I was studying this, I gained great sympathy because this is extraordinarily hard, extraordinarily hard for these Jews at this point. And the only way I could start to even think about what this would mean for me was when it comes to people cutting in line. I mean, just, just the inception of it. I mean, I, I have a very strong justice streak in me, incredibly strong. Uh, part of that I, I attribute to my great-great-grandfather who led the last revolution in Holland, surprisingly enough. Um, so uh, we have revolutionaries in my family, and, and I see that come out of me sometimes. And one of the biggest ways I see that come out of me is when people cut in line. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It doesn't matter what kind of line it is. If there's any kind of line, it shall not be transgressed. It cannot happen. You have to go in order in the line. Uh, and this was actually probably one of the most difficult things for me when I went overseas on missions is lines don't matter. They don't matter at all. There is no line. All there is is bodies pressing against bodies until you get to the front. That's it. There's no line. And... And this is what it's like for the Jews, whether for you, you know, going to a theme park or going somewhere else in line at a restaurant. It's like all the Gentiles all of a sudden can cut straight to the front of the line. They don't have to do any of this stuff. They don't have to do any of the 16, the, uh, the 600 laws or more. All they have to do is believe in Jesus and they're saved. It's ridiculous. It is incredibly difficult for them to even understand this. But at the same time, this is what happens with Peter. That he stands up and says that God made a choice among you not to discriminate. No longer is this the case. You don't earn your salvation. You're given salvation. It's a gift through faith by grace. And this is what they had to wrestle with. So as they begin this council, and Peter talks about all this and stands up, he'll say a number of things that really just, that really bother them, but they have to hear. And the first is that, that God cleanses their hearts by faith. All the rituals involved in the Old Testament, all the ceremonies that they had to do in order to pay for sin, to make sure that they were right with God, all of that God does in an instant when they believe the gospel. No longer any washings, no longer any sacrifices, because there's one great sacrifice for all sinners, Jesus. And this is what they have to wrestle with. Besides that, Peter's going to say a couple other things that they need to hear. And he talks about how there's a yoke placed on them. Why would you put this yoke on the Gentiles? Because you couldn't even bear it. And we can't help but hear Matthew 11 in it, as Jesus talks about it, his invitation to the Jewish people who are under the law. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus's new commandment is him. No longer these laws. 
And so we see that Paul will pick this up later in Galatians by saying that no one can be justified by works of the law. It happens through faith. This is the new theological clarification that needed to happen in Acts. The works of the law do not save anyone. And this is really the problem with the Jewish people at this point, especially the Judaizers, is they're thinking that the law is what saves them, which really reveals something about them. And we get to it in verse 11. Let me read that for you. But we believe, Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them according uh, among the Gentiles. When everyone hears this news, that salvation is by the grace of the Lord Jesus, it stops their mouths. They realize that they can no longer say they're justified before God. And really, this is the point of the law that so many of the Jewish people forgot. The whole point of the law is to say, this is a reflection of what God is like. This is the character of God. This is how he is. That he's not someone who steals. He's not someone who covets. He's not someone who commits adultery. God is somebody who is completely righteous. And this law, these 613 rules, show you just a piece of what God is like. And so the point was never that they could keep the law. The point was that they would see the law and say, God is righteous. God is worthy of praise. God will save people because he is kind and just. And now we see in Jesus that this is the turning point. Acts 15 shows us that no longer do people have to keep the law. Jesus has fulfilled it. So when they come out saying that they have to keep the law, really what's going on is this. And I saw it in my own heart as I studied. When we tell other people, whether it's Jews or us, when we tell other people there's a certain standard that you have to live by in order for God to accept you, in order for God to be gracious to you, what you're really saying is, I don't believe God will accept me by grace. I really believe there's something I have to do to prove myself, to present myself, to clean myself up before he will accept me. And that's not the gospel. Very clearly, the gospel is that Jesus died on your behalf, rose for your justification to make you right with God. You can't do it. So this theological clarification happens in Acts 15. And we see that salvation by grace seems unfair because we want other people to work for their own salvation. We want other people to work for their standing to God. But if God's free, unmerited, extravagant grace seems unfair to us, then really that just reveals to us that we're living by law and not grace. That's what it does. If we feel... If we maintain, if we demand that people have to live a certain way apart from what God says, then really what we're saying is operationally we live by law and not grace. And that's what Peter says he will not have a single part of. 
It is only by grace, Jesus' grace, that we're saved. So we see that salvation by grace is hard to embrace because it seems unfair, but really it is extraordinarily more than fair. More than fair God has been to give these people grace and life through Jesus, even though they could not attain it by themselves. And perhaps a more significant reason that it's hard for everyone to embrace this grace is because it's simply not about us. And that's the next thing that we see in the passage. It's not about us. Starting in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In contrast to the legalistic motives that we saw just a few seconds ago, James essentially says that salvation is about God and not man. He reaffirms Peter's position. So we have Peter, we have Paul and Barnabas, and now we have James all saying the same thing, that salvation is a gracious gift by God, purchased by Jesus. And so... James really is a unifying and a decisive figure here because there's probably hardly anybody in the room at that point that knows more scripture or is more Jewish than James. James is the person to speak on this issue. He is the Lord's brother. He grew up with with Jesus, his half-brother. And as he did this, he obviously gained a tremendous understanding of the scriptures. And he will give three Old Testament scriptures tied together to give one point. That is not about us, it's about God. So when God gives salvation, he does it for his name. And that's what we see. And that's why it's hard to embrace, because it's really not about us, it's about God. But we also see more specifically that it's about a person. In verse 17, or verse 16, says, I will re- uh, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. The tent of David, of course, is a reference to the Davidic covenant, where God said, one day, David, I will give you a son who will sit on the throne forever. He will reign forever as king. And that's what James picks out of the Old Testament, out of all the things he could say, to say that it's not about us, and it's about God. More specifically, it's about Jesus. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. This is really what James is saying, and as he thinks and sees the whole of the Old Testament in his mind, he'll pull together three different verses from Amos, from Jeremiah, and Isaiah to say, this really isn't about us. It's about God, and that's why it's so difficult for us, but at the same time, this is why it's so good for us. You see, because salvation by grace is about God, it results in good for us. And we see that the grace is for everyone in verses 17 and 18, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. 
There are people, James says, Jews and Gentiles that God has known from of old, before the world was made, before any of us were born, there were people God had in mind who would be called by his name. And this is a great encouragement for the church. It's hard, but at the same time, this is the basis of missions. And we see that from this, it spurs on the second missionary journey of the church, that there are people God has called for his name, Jews and Gentiles, and they don't have to go through the whole crazy circulation of the law. They don't have to keep all the commandments. All they have to do is hear the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. And that's it. And so some application for us, do you think that the Christian life is about God or you? I think a lot of us typically plan our days centered around our agendas. What, what do I have to get done today? What work do I have to do? Who do I have to meet with? What kind of parties do I need to do for my family? Do we stop and think? Do we stop and consider or even just pray and ask God, God, what is it that you want today? I know I have all these plans, but you have your plans and they will succeed. And your plans obviously involve other people. Do we make life all about us or about God? Are you more concerned with how you feel or what Jesus wants? That's another thing I was thinking as I was studying. Am I more concerned just about the way that things will make me feel or what I want than what Jesus actually wants? This is the dilemma for these Jewish Christians do we just hold on to our tradition because we've had it for so long? Or do we say it's God's and let it go? It's not about us. Salvation by grace is hard for us to embrace because it seems unfair to us, but more importantly, because it is really about God and not us. God receives the credit and the glory, not us. God receives the praise, not us. God is the center of attention, not us. Everything exists through him and for him. And we don't like this naturally. But think about this. We all know it. Whenever you see some news story of some sort of harrowing act go on, who does the camera zoom in on? Who does it talk to? Who wants to be interviewed? Who do people want to hear from? Who do people want to know about? It's not the victim. Every time. You don't go to the person who was drowning to say, tell me, how you saved yourself because it didn't happen. You go to the hero and this is the story as James sees it in the scriptures. God is the hero. More specifically, Jesus is the hero. And that is something that's hard for us to embrace because we want to be the center. And that's hard, but it doesn't stop there. The third and last thing that we see about salvation by grace is it's hard to embrace because it considers other people. It considers others. And so we read James's decision in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood and from ancient generations. Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath 
in the synagogues. And I'll stop there. What happens here? James, he sees it all. And he puts together with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas this new theological clarification. Salvation is by grace through Jesus, apart from the works of the law. Nothing we do can ever add to that. But there still remains some practical consideration here. Even though the theological problem has been dealt with, there's a huge practical problem in place. And that is between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, how is it? You can say the question is this, after all that's been decided, how are the Jewish and Gentile believers going to live in harmony together as a new family? That's really what James is talking about. So his judgment, as he says, is this. Saved by grace through Jesus, but let's do this. Let's tell the Gentiles, here's what they need to do. And he'll give them four things that they need to do. That they shouldn't be involved in sexual immorality. That they shouldn't eat anything that's been strangled or with blood. And that they should abstain things that have been polluted by idols. And the reason he does this, as we'll see, is really to unify both groups. You see, it's hard for us to understand, but to be a Jew, like I said earlier, means you're really separate from society. You have, and even still today, in New York City, if you go to some Jewish sects, they will be so incredibly insulated that they won't even go outside to talk to people. They stay in their own group. And James says, this is not how it's supposed to be anymore. These two groups must come together to be unified because Jesus is unifying them. And so I I won't say, I won't read for you verses 22 through 29, but it's essentially the same thing that James has just said. He says, we need to tell the Gentile believers that they shouldn't do these four things. Why? Not because of the law. Not because they shouldn't do these things according to the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. But if they do these things, they will separate themselves from their Jewish brothers and sisters. And that is something that must not happen. We must unify as a church because Jesus has unified us. And so their, their new question that they operate by is what promotes unity? How can we come together? And this is something that is hard for both Jews and Gentiles because we see the Jews have to give up the law. They don't have to make other people keep the law. They can keep it for their own conscience if they want, but for the Gentiles, they have to give up things too. What's wrong with, with uh, a good filet mignon offered to an idol? Nothing in the Gentile view. But for them to do that meant that they could not even relate with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so the decisions handed down, salvation by grace, the grace of Jesus, but don't do these four things. Because if you do them, you will separate yourself from the family. And the Gentile believers are encouraged, incredibly encouraged by it, and they agree to it. And so we read, the next part in Acts 15:30. So when they were sent off, Paul and Barnabas, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And the Ju- and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 
And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they send the letter. They tell the Gentiles, it's fine. Just don't do these four things. And as that happens, as that happens, the church rejoices. They rejoice because they are a family. They realize that now these two groups of people can actually come together and they can share a meal together. They can go shopping in the same markets together. They can actually sit around the same well and talk with one another for the first time. They can be around one another. And this is a huge emphasis in Luke. And I'll just tell you, um, as Luke writes this, there are... Uh, the word that he uses for brothers pops up all the time through this chapter. It normally occurs in the New Testament, uh, especially in Acts. But on average, every chapter in Acts, two to three times. So it has a real family feel to it. It's constantly talking about brothers and sisters and meeting together and all that kind of thing. But when the, you get to Acts chapter 15, there's a huge change a huge change, and it's this, that Paul, uh, that, that Luke, as he writes, will use the word brothers, or brothers and sisters, 11 times in this chapter. His point is to say that we are the family of God, and the family of God, how do they operate? They encourage one another. They encourage one another. That is how families are to operate. And so, Leave your traditions, leave your privileges, and come together, sacrifice for one another so that you can love on one another. And this is why we have community groups. We don't have community groups at this church just so that we can have some sort of social party, some social club that we go to once a week, another thing added to the calendar. That's not it. It happens, we have community groups because they are the primary place where life-on-life discipleship happens. In my life, or in anyone else's here at the church, people get to see you, they see how you react when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're happy. They can approach you and say, I think you're wrong on this issue. I think you're right on this issue. I think you have some character stuff you need to look at. All this happens in the church as a family. And Luke's emphasis in Acts is this. The church is the family of God. Jews and Gentiles, people that you think are crazy off wrong in some direction, and people that you think have the same position as you. Ultimately, salvation by grace is what unifies and brings them together. And this is the way it happens in our church with community groups. This is the way it must happen. This is why it's so vital for every single one of you, including myself and my family, to be in a community group. We need people in our lives to see us and talk to us and encourage us. It does not happen much on a Sunday morning. There's not enough time for it. Maybe a meal after, but you have to have other people, other believers in your life. And so we see that the encouragement that happens with the church here is something that involves other people. And the question changes a little bit from what promotes unity and how can I encourage people to all of a sudden, how can I restore someone? How can I restore someone? 
in the fellowship. And this is what happens with the last section here. In verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is great. This is exactly where all the momentum is going. You know what? There's more people that need to hear about this. There's more people that need to be encouraged. Let's go. So they decide to do that. In verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, who is actually his nephew or his cousin. His cousin, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo in Acts, end up having a falling out and split ways. How does this happen, and why is it here? I think, I'll tell you why it's here in a second, but it happens because Paul, Paul is a bit of a hardliner here, and he says, John Mark shouldn't come with us again because he tapped out in Pamphylia. When things got rough, he couldn't take it. He's not reliable. Barnabas is far more generous, and he says, no, let's give him a second chance. It's hard to say whether or not there was actually sin issues involved here, and someone was right and someone was wrong. It's hard to say that. What we do know is that it takes some time, and we know this here, we know it other places, it takes time for this grace, salvation, by grace, to penetrate all the different areas of our lives. It takes time for that to happen. And I think that's probably the takeaway, the point from this episode, and why Luke tacks it on at the end here, in this huge, euphoric episode of the church coming together and being unified and encouraging each other. He finishes it out by saying, and it's going to take time. This is not something that happens overnight. And we see later on that it does actually happen. Paul and John Mark reconcile, and then they work together in ministry. And Mark is not any small figure. He's the gospel writer of the gospel of Mark. He's somebody who's incredibly faithful. And it took some time. Regardless of the motives and what happened, we see that the church commends the unity of these believers going out and God does something great with it. Instead of having one missionary trip going, they have two. God is the one who uses this for his glory. And this is a great hope for us that regardless of our decisions and what happens or what controversies happen, what conflicts happen, God is the one who is using it to accomplish his purposes they cannot mess up God's plan. God accomplishes what he wants. And so I ask you, do you see yourself as a member of this church body, this local church body? That's what happens here in Acts. They see each other as local family members, but more than that, also the big C church. Do you see yourself as a part of the, the big church in all places, at all times. And here's a good one. Do you want to be around other believers at this church? This is Paul and Barnabas. 
and eventually John Mark and what they had to decide, do you even want to be around each other? The gospel calls us to do it. And it's also why it's difficult for us. Salvation by grace is hard for us to embrace because it considers others. And we don't like doing that naturally. It's convenience and comfort that we want. Not giving up our traditions, not giving up our privileges, but this is what Jesus calls us to do. And to close, just reviewing it for you, we see salvation by grace is hard to embrace. It's, this is because it seems unfair to us. And it's not about us and it considers others. But when you really start to put it all together, what you start to see is that it's not just hard to embrace. This salvation by grace is not just hard. It's impossible. It is impossible. It is not natural. In fact, it is just the opposite. It's supernatural. This sort of living together in unity, this sort of considering each other, this sort of sacrificing for one another, this sort of living by grace and not legalism is really something that God has to do in your heart supernaturally. It's not anything that you could figure out or you can know or you could understand by yourself. And so for you, maybe you're like one of the Judaizers that you think everyone has to keep the rules and you keep the rules and that, that's what makes you right. Or others of you, you think that you don't need rules at all. You can do whatever you want. That's not what brings us together in the gospel. It is a laying down of both people's traditions and privileges where we come together and see that the most important thing is Jesus and not myself. Not my wants, not my desires. It's what God wants. That's what's most important and that's what will remain. So salvation by grace is actually impossible to embrace apart from faith that God gives. And maybe you've never seen that. Maybe you've never believed it. If that's the case, then I I call you. See it. See Jesus. Believe in him. You will have a life free from the law, but full of grace. Let's pray.